0: Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions
1: apply. Hey there, Duke fans. This is Jason Evans. Uh, This is a preamble to the podcast because I wanted all of you to know that since we recorded this podcast, uh, we've gotten news that Luke Kennard um, has declared. draft. I'm not going to expand on that now. We're not going to talk about that in detail, but I wanted you all to know that we recorded this podcast before we heard uh, about Kennard's decision. Um, There'll be a number of references to him and to the hope that he's going to come back to Duke and things like that in this podcast. Pretend like it's a few days ago. (laughs) That's the only advice I can give you. And now here's Donald and the band and the rest of the podcast.
2: Hey there, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 77 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We are recording this on Wednesday, April 5th, and it's time to not talk about that game that took place on Monday, but to talk about our team, who's leaving, who's staying so far, and then we will take some questions from you, the listeners. We will get into all that in just a minute, but first, allow me to reintroduce myself. It's been a couple weeks, but my name is still Donald, and I'm coming to you on what is a magnificent day here in Washington, D.C. My partners in crime are here, too. First, Sam in Denver. What's up, man?
3: Hey, Donald. I'm uh, doing well, other than having to have suffered through that basketball game on Monday night. What basketball game on Monday night?
2: thought we weren't going to talk oh, about Sorry, that. sorry. I forgot. It didn't happen. <laughs> it did not happen. Uh, in Atlanta, hopefully staying safe from the weather and avoiding I-85. It's Jason Evans. Jason, hello, sir.
1: Yes, it is a uh, it is a traffic nightmare in my uh, in my fair city, um, as I'm sure most of the country has heard. Um, and and I'll be honest, I I watched that game on Monday night and thought it was an interesting, ugly, ugly, ugly contest. Um, and I know that people, I'm probably going to lose my Duke card for saying this, but it's not entirely horrible, awso- awful, terrible that the ACC won the national title, is it? Jason,
3: you can't you can't just give up on your on your character <laughs> so easily. Exactly. You, you, I feel like of all the people of all the people on this show, and that being three of us, you have the most like definitive character trait, um, <laughs> which is just a, like a, a blinding hatred of all things UNC, and and I don't want to see uh, don't want to see us change so fundamentally so
1: easily. Well, well, hang on, hang on, because we should. That should be revised and refined because um, folks who've been around the DBR a long time and have known me a long time on it, I've been, you know, I've been around the DBR since the the mid nineteen nineties, I think. <laughs> um, I, I used to take a lot of heat for being a closet Carolina fan because I was always no, the I, one who and, said, "Yeah, go ahead." <laughs> I, was just, I mean, I was always the one who said Carolina being good is good for the rivalry and good for Duke, and that the rivalry is great and the rivalry is important because both teams are really good. Um, where, where I've changed in recent years is my absolute vitriol, anger, disgust at Carolina over the scandal, over the right. uh, you know NCAA academic scandal, which we're gonna talk about in, in more detail in a little bit. Um, but I, I will say this about the national championship game. Um, while I still think that the Carolina administration um, is is shameful and embarrassing, and uh, done a horrific job um, of of doing the right thing. They've pretty much done the wrong thing every step along the way with the scandal. While I still think that Roy Williams knew what was going on and has not um, been honest about what he knew or what he thinks is happening with the investigation. Um, you know, there there are, there's a long list of people at UNC that I think deserve the harshest, harshest, worst punishments possible. The UNC program, I think, deserves tremendous, tremendous penalties. But the players who were out on the floor on Monday, my understanding is, and I truly believe, took legitimate classes and were not part of the scandal. And while I think Carolina should have been punished and barred from the tournament, the fact of the matter is they haven't been punished yet by the NCAA. They were in the tournament legitimately. and. I don't think it's the end of the world that they won the national title. Should so, we?
3: Should, I mean, should we? Should we go deep on this right now, or should we come back to it? Let's
2: come back to it. Um, okay.
3: because
1: <laughs> I feel like
2: I feel like Jason is, is
3: hungry. I, I, I just uh, wanted I wanted to hear that from Jason um, because I because I because I, I, I also agree with him in, in basically his whole explanation there. Uh, I just wanted to have him state it all for the record. So Donald, keep going.
2: Yeah, I was. I mean, look.
1: Donald, UNC, you're losing control, man. You're I losing know. control. because
2: you're, you're hungry, man. And You should grab a Snickers. You know you're not you when you're hungry. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think UNC being good is good for the rival. is good for basketball. But they don't have to be that good. I mean, they just have to be good. They just have to make the tournament. They don't have to, like, be the last man standing. And that's all I'll say about that because – We have some news from Duke we have to get into. Let's get into the first bit of news of what the team is going to look like next year. Uh, We're gonna talk about first, who will not be on the team next year. Of course, Emil Jefferson and Matt Jones are seniors. They will be graduating And over the last couple of weeks in what should have not been a surprise to anybody. Jason Tatum and Harry Giles declared that they will enter the 2017 NBA draft. Uh, the, two uh, the two freshmen were ranked one and two coming out of high school, and all along we suspected they were going to be one and done. That has been the case. They are going pro. So we'll start with this first. Uh, Sam, give me your thoughts on Jason and, and Harry uh, declaring for the NBA. So I'm not surprised. I don't think
3: anyone is surprised. Tatum certainly is going to be a top five-ish pick. He's one of the most talented freshmen we've seen at Duke, um, not just in the one and done era, but but uh, for all time. And you know, just like Kyrie Irving a few years ago, like Jabari Parker, um, Tatum's a guy we look at and think that he could be, you know, one of the very best players that's ever come out of Duke, freshman or otherwise, um, to play in the league. So I'm I'm not surprised about that. I was glad that they that they got the announcement out really quickly um, because. There's no point in waiting. Um, you know, he's got a lot of work to do to prepare for that and talk to teams and go through all the workouts and all that stuff. Um, with Giles, I think we all expected it as well. Um, not that, you know, it, it didn't, you know, they, they postponed the announcement a little bit. I think that Duke actually, just as an aside, I think that they've gotten really good at um, at making these announcements special for the players um, and and sort of controlling the message. I think that, in general, Duke basketball is good at at, at sort of their brand and presence and all that stuff, you know, having the the whole Duke Blue Planet thing and, and consolidating all the social media together, um, you know, it's a it's a really a really like professional operation, and um, the fact that they space out the. The announcements like this. So we get Tatum one day, we get Giles a couple days later. I think it's really good for the kids too because, you know, they, they, they don't have, there, there aren't that many of them. They don't have to feel like, um, you know, someone else is, is taking their spotlight. And Tatum and Giles are, are notable prospects for very different reasons, right? Tatum is, is basically a known product at this point. Everyone knows how great he is. Um, but he came in with obviously a very high ceiling, but still was not the, you know, the cornerstone of this class. It was supposed to be Harry Giles. And so even with Giles taking such a long time off um, from, you know, being healthy and and playing basketball, and even at the the low level of production he had this year, I think that fans expect him eventually, hopefully, um, to become the player that that he once was. And so it's nice that they spread it out. And then just kind of going back to Giles really quick, um, you know, it's not surprising, I just hope that that he's healthy enough to really show off for teams during the draft process. You only obviously need to impress one team to to get that draft pick um, but you know if you told me that Harry Giles is going to be the tenth pick in the draft, I'd think wow, that's great he 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 really stood out to to a team that's probably taking him before the expectation. If you told me he was going to be the twenty ninth pick in the draft, I wouldn't be surprised um, so that's going to be a, a really interesting one to watch and and certainly, just like for all the guys who have left before, um, wish them nothing but the best. They, you know, it's a shame that that Giles's Duke career didn't work out as well as we could have hoped. Um, but you know, we hope that he that he represents Duke well in the NBA. There's certainly a lot of Duke players in the NBA. Um, but both Tatum and Giles have the potential to be right there at the top of that group.
1: Jason, to me, Harry Giles is the more interesting one because Jason Tatum we saw all year scored and played the game in the way an NBA basketball player does and so it was clear that he was you know a ready for the NBA and B the NBA would be very interested in his skills um and no one no one associated with the Duke program no Duke fan was even remotely surprised by his decision now i don't think as sam said i don't think anyone was surprised at harry giles decision either but that's the one that sort of you know hangs out there for us because we go wait a second this was a guy who who couldn't even find, you know, he averaged 11 and a half minutes per game for Duke, Um, uh, less than four points and less than four rebounds per game. Uh, and, and we would see glimmers every now and then. And look, we on the podcast, we would obsess over those little moments, you know, two minutes. Quite often it was a minute or two here or there. And we would go, oh, my God, look at what this guy could be. When's it going to happen for him where he can put that together for more than two minutes and more than every third game or so, which is about what we saw, and it never happened for him. And and so you see that and you go, how on earth is someone like that going to go to the NBA draft? And the reality is the NBA is not stupid. They're like us. They can watch these games. They can watch the performance of these guys, and they can see those little two-minute glimmers, and they say, you know what? You know, when he gets a little more healthy, when he gets, when he's able to focus on basketball full-time, let's not forget that these guys are going to classes and they're doing other things other than basketball when they're at Duke. The moment they enter the NBA, they will be focused on basketball full-time, all the time, you know, 365 days of the year because it's a job. Um, the NBA looks at 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 Giles and they say, we're going to be able to get him where he doesn't do that for two minutes every three games, where he does it for 20 or 30 minutes every single game. and. And so, while inherently we want to say this guy shouldn't have come out yet, there was so much more he could do, there was so much more he could learn, he could have improved his stock and all these other things. I mean, for Harry Giles, he's he's gonna, you know, probably go at the end of the, most of the mock drafts. Have him going at the very end of the lottery. Um, I, I think you know it's going to be very interesting to to note how he does in workouts for NBA teams. There's no team that's going to draft him without watching him you know without without having him give them a workout um and without having their doctors have a look at him um and and the hope would be that the doctors will say yeah we think he's on his way uh and and so he can you know so he's worth drafting and and if that's the case boy teams drafting in the teens the early teens may really be looking at harry giles and if he has some good workouts you know it's not impossible to imagine him going 10 you know 10 to 12 even um So, you know, it's frustrating for a Duke fan. Um, You know, I I don't know that we're post-morteming the season again, but um, I think that the sky-high expectations for Duke, uh, you know, six months ago, uh, a lot of the reason for those was the expectation that Harry Giles would become far, far, far more than he did. And so we're so, we're frustrated both at his performance and that we won't get to see him play in a Duke uniform anymore. But it makes sense. I understand why he's doing it. He's taking a tremendous amount of money, life-changing money, and he's going to get to focus on basketball full-time, and it's what he's always dreamed of. So it's hard for me to be upset, but I understand why some fans would be upset. Let me just put it that way.
2: Yeah, so I I, I agree with both of you on on your thoughts. I think in Jason Tatum's case, it's it's really easy to make that leap. I think in my mind, he was probably – the most nba ready freshman in college this year um that is you know a good sign he i think he's going to go top five i think he should go top five but obviously you know the draft is is a quirky little thing um and he i think he's ready to go to the nba in harry giles case it's about potential and that's what a lot of these nba drafts are about it's about the potential to be great uh, obviously, he didn't show that in college. He, you know, because of his injuries, uh, he didn't get an opportunity to really develop into his his new body and his new game. Um, and I think that is probably where people see the frustration in him going at this point. But it's not always about what you do in college; it's about how you how the NBA teams suspect you will do in the NBA, and that is why he, even through all of this, even when he was injured when he wasn't playing that much, he was still listed among the uh, lottery picks, uh, uh, potential lottery picks for this year's draft in a very deep class. Uh, they're, they're grading him based on the fact that if he, you know, completely heals from his uh, knee injuries, his arthroscopic knee surgeries, uh, uh, I think this will be a great pickup for a team that a lot of people will probably say, hey, you know, he's not going to he's going to drop a little bit because of the injuries. But someone may be getting a steal here and, and getting a guy who can develop into a very good NBA player, and, and that is where we're we're at with these guys. I think they see that, and I think that's why the this whole time we've expected them to go to the NBA because that potential is is clearly there. Um, we saw flashes of it during the season uh, in in the case of Harry Giles. So I'm not mad. I I, I think it's uh, when you expect somebody to go and they go, um, then there's no reason to be upset about it. Uh, but I do wish them well. I think they're going to be great, and and hopefully. Uh, the Pistons, uh, my Pistons can pick up one of them. Moving on. Uh, I think there's two other uh, departures that we need to talk about at this time. Uh, the other two departures that we know about chase Jeter and Sean Obie, have both announced that they will transfer uh, at the end of the uh, school academic school year uh, to other schools. Those schools are, are not yet determined, but in Sean Obi's case, he will be graduating this year from Duke and will be a graduate transfer free to play anywhere next year. Um, he, Chase Jeter is finishing out this semester so that he can leave Duke in good academic standing. But when he transfers, he will have to sit out one full year and then will be ready uh, for the 2018-2019 season. Uh, Jason, I'll start with you. Your thoughts on these two big men leaving the Duke program. Jason might be on mute. Or he hung up. Jason is on mute. <laughs>
3: I'll go. I'll go. Okay, okay Sam, you so, go. No, 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 no. Wait, wait,
1: wait, 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 wait. Sorry. No, no, sorry. No, 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 You had Listen, you had your chance. Um, no, because wait, I got, I got news. I've got news about. Oh. I, was, I was, I was launching into a long thing, and and you guys couldn't hear it. <laughs> no
3: one, no one could. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> so, I'll, so I'll pick it up. So regarding Chase Jeter, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Donald, but um, news came out today. Um, that uh, of some of the schools he's looking at and it's all schools um, on the West coast. Arizona is in there. USC is in there. Um, It tends to be PAC 12 kind of schools um, that, that he's, uh, that he's considering. Uh, And I I think, I mean, Chase Jeter is a guy who uh, you know, sort of like Harry Giles showed flashes at times, not on the athletic level that Harry Giles didn't, but uh, I can see why Chase Jeter is going to be a, a attractive um, player for for a number of uh, of high major programs, um, uh, who who probably think that they can really get something out of him, especially with another. You know, he's going to have to sit out the year, as you pointed out, um, and, and and then you know he'll play his fourth and fifth years of college, uh, at, you know, at whatever program gets him. And um, you know, I think Chase Jeter probably has a reasonably bright future. He's he's long. Um, he is athletic. Uh, he needs to learn a lot more skills, especially on offense. But, um, uh, you know, there's there's a history at Duke of guys who transfer and how they do in um, uh, whether they make it to the NBA, whether they make it to their goals of, of being professional basketball players. And for the most part, even though Duke fans gnash their teeth and, and you know, pull out their hair when a guy transfers and leaves and we're like, oh, but he could have done so well here. For the most part, um, though, they may be somewhat successful in college. These guys don't end up turning into NBA prospects. Um, I'm trying to think. I don't think they're... Oh, you know what? Uh, Shemi, Shemi Ojole, um, whose name I probably just mispronounced, at SMU, uh, has turned into an NBA prospect. And he's really like... He's practically the first one to transfer from Duke. I guess Elliot Williams, sorry. Elliot uh, Williams. He will, yeah. Uh, so those two guys... Um, are the ones who have transferred and, and uh, sort of played their way into becoming NBA prospects. But most of the guys who leave Duke, Jamal Boykin, and uh, you know, we could go down a laundry list of, of players. Um, Michael they Thompson don't... Michael Thompson. Yeah. Uh, look, uh, like I said, there's a, there's a long list of them. <laughs> they, they, they don't really end up becoming Alex Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to continue. Who, uh, uh Michael Benajay. Um, he, he got drafted. Oh, uh, uh, like,
0: like,
3: like, like,
1: like, <laughs> like, yes. Uh, Anyway, I was going to say that I sort of feel like Chase Jeter may have a chance of playing his way into it because because of his size and athleticism, which are somewhat unique. But I think it's kind of a long shot. So, um, you know, it's unfortunate uh, that we lost him. Um, He could have been a valuable player for Duke, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure any of us look at him and say, oh, Chase was going to start next year. Oh, Chase was going to be, you know, play 20 minutes plus per game. I think he was, I think his future at Duke was probably as a part-time player at best, you know, eighth man kind of thing. And and we've seen time and again that Coach K doesn't tend to play his eighth man that much. And as for Sean Obie, um, the guy's knees just never were were right. Um, and athletically, it meant that he couldn't compete on the floor. I haven't seen anything about what schools he's considering, but I'd be very surprised if he goes to a you know a high major Division one program, um, but he's a he's a good kid. He always represented Duke well. Uh, I I actually ran into him um, when I was on campus uh, six months ago or so. He was in the religion building, um, and and I was like, you know what, the, these Duke kids are all going to class, um, and and that says something about you know the kind of kids we bring in and the kind of kid that he he was for Duke. So he's graduating. Props on that, and I'm sure he'll. Um, you know he'll go on to pursue wonderful things in his life, just probably not big time basketball.
3: I'm I'm actually kind of surprised that I'm I'm almost more surprised that Sean Obi transferred than Chase Jeter because if if Obi's really not healthy, I don't know. I mean he's he's finished with his degree, right? He's been in college for four years. Mm-hmm. Um, is he going to be able to transfer somewhere where he's actually going to play basketball? I mean he didn't even. He didn't even dress for all the games this year. We didn't see him play a minute, um, even in blowouts or at the beginning of the season or anything like that. Um, so I'm not entirely sure what his plan is because he is finished with undergrad. So he's going to have to transfer, I guess, to get a graduate degree. Um, but I'm not sure that any school is, is going to take him if he's not going to be able to play for that one season. But also um, he has to when-
2: transfer to a school. He has to, tra- he has to transfer uh, the rules of the graduate transfer if you want to play immediately. You have to transfer to a graduate program that is not right. offered at the at the school that you are transferring from. So right. which, I mean Duke has a ton be, of them. So that, that that's
1: gonna narrow down well. everything immediately. Right. right. But, but don't have not, specialized program. it's not that tough.
3: Right. Yeah, Duke's not an enormous state school that has, you know, every every program under the sun. So I'm not as concerned about that. But then but then looking at Jeter, you know, certainly Jeter coming in probably had higher expectations than than what panned out for him. Um on the other hand, you can look at Duke guys, uh, particularly big men, who have taken a while to develop and still managed to become productive players who then went to the NBA. And I'm thinking about Lance Thomas, and I'm thinking about uh, Marshall Plumlee, um, who's very recent and who was Chase, Jeter, was Chase Jeter's teammate? Yes? Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah correct. He was Chase Jeter's teammate for one year. Um, well, look, hey, for, for that matter, both Miles and Mason Plumlee, these are not guys that, that were big-time players from day one. Sure, but but Marshall Plumlee wasn't even like a rotation player until he was a junior. Um, yeah, yeah.
3: You know, and, that, and that's a very recent example. I think it's – I think on and, – and we might be touching on this a little bit more when we get to the question period. Um, but that, you know, it's a little disheartening that Jeter thinks um, or that, that sort of consensus among his family or whoever else is that he – won't be able to turn into a productive player, and and I can see how part of that is just driven by recruiting and, and who else is, is on the team and competing for minutes. Um, but it is kind of a bummer that we're we're not going to get to see him develop. And you know he's he's been an academic All ACC or All America. I know he's got had some kind of academic awards. Um, so you figure he's he's kind of a bright kid, and um, hopefully that would mean he would translate into leadership on this team, um, which I, I think is you know for all the for all the talk about who's coming and who's going, leadership, I think, is going to be the, the biggest concern for this Duke team next year because there won't be upperclassmen. And Chase Jeter was probably going to be a captain next year, and now he's not going to be around. Um, so I'm I'm a little concerned in general about that. But again, like we say for everyone, and, and I will say again for these two, I, I did not perceive that there was any that there's any ill will here. Um, I hope that they succeed in both of the places that they're going. Um, and in Jeter's case, like you mentioned, Jason, he's going back to the West coast where he's from. Um, Cause I believe he's from Las Vegas, right? So, he is, yes, um, yes, so yes. I mean, he's closer to home. Um, so more family and friends will be able to come see him at games. Um, and, and in all likelihood, we'll, we'll never have to play against him because when does Duke ever play teams on the West coast?
1: Um, so, uh, you know, so, uh, uh, Hey, hey, really quick uh, on, on Chase Jeter, you brought up Marshall Plumley, and and props to you. This is a great comparison um, in terms of guys who stick around and turn into something. Um, Chase Jeter has played almost twice as many minutes in his first two years as Marshall Plumley did in his first two years. Chase Jeter has Marshall Plumley only scored forty points total in his first two seasons. Chase Jeter has over a hundred points. Now, not that that's a lot. A hundred points is like you know, uh, that's like you know. F- Three or four good games for Luke Kennard, but uh, uh, you know Chase Jeter certainly figured much much more into Duke's plans last season and this season than um, than Marshall Plumley did his first couple of years, and and things just sort of worked out for Marshall to to turn into a pretty significant player as a as a senior, and then he parlayed that into a role in the NBA. Um, and and you brought up Sean Obie and wondering where he's going to go. We haven't heard anything. I don't. I, I, I firmly, I really firmly believe that there's not a, you know, a major Division One program that he's going to go transfer to. I think you're going to see him go. Uh, you know, I, I could see him go Division Division Three or Division Two, or or to a smaller Division One program where um, the fact that he has really bad knees and can't can't jump won't be that big a deal because he's not going to be on a team where he's required to. Compete against guys who are six eight, six nine, and really athletic. Um, sure. So, so I, I think that's probably what's, you know, in his future.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with those. And you mentioned uh, some of the possible landing spots for Chase Jeter. Uh, USC being an, an interesting one, only because uh, you know former Duke player Derek Thornton just transferred there last year. Um, so, and and they were teammates. So, I, I think that would be interesting if he ended up at USC. Uh, because I think that Derek Thornton would have a lot to do with pulling him there and, and getting him involved in that program. But uh, it's it's sad to see him go because I, again, I think he could have developed like you guys said into somebody that would have been, you know, very, very important for us as a junior and senior. Um, but we won't get a chance to see that. In it. But I do wish him well uh, wherever he ends up. And with Sean Obi's case, you know, it's just a matter of like, what could have been, you know, he didn't, we didn't get to see him really play for us because of his knee uh, uh, problems, um, and, and I, I expect he'll end up, as you said, Jason, at, at one of these like low major uh, college. I don't even think mid-major conferences, but like a low major college, like a Manhattan or or, or something on that level. Um, a team that may, qual- if, with him in the ranks, could see uh, visions of of qualifying for the uh, NCAA tournament next year. Uh, by winning their conference tournament, um, but I, I don't think we'll see him at a major program. Uh, I could be wrong though. And, and wherever he ends up, I, I really hope that he gets um, one a, a grief from that school, and 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 hopefully gets back on the court and, and gets to playing again because he has been through a lot, and and it's been kind of frustrating to see him go through that and not really getting to see him play uh, when he transferred hey, into the hey, program. I'll,
1: I'll make a Sean Obie prediction right now. Sean Obi will transfer to a school that we all go, oh, wow, that's a really good academic school or whatever program he's transferring into. We're going to go, oh, that's a really, you know, that's one of the top graduate programs in that field because Sean Obie originally went to Rice mm-hmm. and then went to Duke, which are two of the you know 20 best universities in this country um and i think that academics are really really important to him and to his family um uh i you know uh, does he maybe go to the Ivy league or something like that or i could see him going to you know like Watch a, you. A, a, it, well that'd be d3 but i was thinking d1 you know like a like a bucknell a lehigh a lafayette um you know schools like that that are that are really strong academic um uh, uh programs in addition to having maybe, basketball maybe programs.
3: maybe maybe programs that that think more highly of themselves in basketball than they really are, like Georgetown.
1: Ooh, 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 we just went there. We'll come back to to
2: that, we'll come back to that. Okay, so the final bit of news that we have right now uh, on our team, it was reported a few days ago that uh, this is an interesting kind of dynamic. It was reported a couple days ago that freshman Mark Reese Bolden was going to transfer out of the program, but those reports seem to be premature And then 24 hours after that news, it was officially announced by the team that Marquise Bolden will indeed return to Duke for his sophomore season. Uh, This is big news as Bolden before the season was expected to be maybe one of those one-of-done players along with Jason Tatum and Harry Giles. Uh, Jason, your thoughts on Bolden officially coming back and even how the news went from him being gone
1: to being back. I am real clear on what happened with Marquise Bolden's almost transfer and not transfer. And I, I really think, I think this is a kid who got homesick. We, we, we know, you know, now it had been sort of unofficially known that he was, uh, that he was hurt late in the season, which is one of the reasons he wasn't getting playing time. Look, he struggled with playing time all year because of injuries. And it was just tough for him to get acclimated into the team. He missed time at the beginning of the season. He started to come back and then he got hurt again and he was, uh, he was sick. He was ill um, and couldn't really practice late in the year. Um, I think this is the kid who got homesick. And the reason I think he got homesick is because if you look at the schools, he was supposedly thinking about transferring to sort of like Chase Jeter. It was all these schools back in Texas. It was SMU, it was Houston, it was Texas. Um, and I want to say it was like Texas A&M or someone like that. I, I forget the third one. But in any event, it was all schools back close to his hometown um, in in Texas. He's from DeSoto, Texas, I believe. And uh, I think, you know, he had a year where he he struggled to find a role on the Duke team. Um, And I think he started sort of thinking, you know what? The NBA doesn't look like it's in the cards right away for me right now. And, and I'm a little frustrated and, and he started, he just sort of went, maybe I should go home. I'm, I'm more comfortable there. I, I, you know, I'm closer to my family and my support structure. Um, and, and I think, you know, stuff leaked out early before he had really, really decided things. Uh, and that's, that's so unfortunate. Um, it's not fair to him, but, um, it's pretty clear to me, the leaks happened. Word came out that he was thinking about a transfer and He very quickly went to the Duke staff and he said, no, you know what, I've thought about this and my future, uh, my best path to the NBA is not sitting out a year and then playing for a school in Texas that is not a program nearly on the caliber of Duke. He said, my best path is to stay here at Duke, to work really hard, to get healthy. And, um, and, And I think he decided very, very quickly. Uh, that that's what he wanted to do, and that was the right thing to do, and and I'm thrilled that this guy's coming back. Uh, th- he has the potential to be um, a rim protector unlike anything Duke's seen since, I don't know, Elton Brand? Uh, you uh, know, are you maybe forgetting ever. Sheldon Williams? Sheldon Williams, the landlord. Uh, so can we edit this and go back? <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> a rim like, protector I, unlike...
1: I was like, like,
3: he's about to say Sheldon Williams, and then I'm going to think... All right, who's he forgetting between now and Sheldon Williams cuz that is the obvious like last great duke rim protector, right? But you didn't even go there. So, Yes, um, yes.
1: I blew it. I blew it. I forgot Sheldon Williams. <laughs> All right. So, he has I, the I'm, potential to be a rim protector like Sheldon Williams.
3: <laughs> I I'm 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 totally with you, Jason. I think that it, it was it was really confusing to me and I, and I expressed this to you guys, I think, um, when that news came out like going to the NBA would be a weird move because um, he certainly wasn't ready and he wasn't healthy at the end of the year, and there was definitely no guarantee that he was going to be a first round pick, um, you know, probably somewhere like mid late second round if he had left. Um, and then on the same token, transferring didn't seem like the most logical move because he's clearly athletic um, and he's a big guy and and if he's healthy probably has a role on any team that he's playing on. so why delay that by a year um, and And I kind of thought a little bit about sort of what's the difference between Marquise Bolden and a guy like Rodney Hood, who had an NBA-level body um, when, you know, he, he went to Mississippi State his freshman year, he transferred to Duke, he sat out, and then played his junior year at Duke, which was only his second year of eligibility, and then went in the first round of the NBA draft and is a, and is a pretty good NBA player. Um, so what's, what would compel a player like Rodney Hood to choose that route rather than what Marquise, Marquise Bolden is doing? Um, and I think that the key difference here is that Rodney Hood was playing at Mississippi State, where you know he was getting one or two games a year against Kentucky, one or two games a year against like Florida, but for the most part, isn't getting the kind of exposure that a guy at Duke gets. If Rodney Hood had had the freshman season he had at Duke, he probably stays for his sophomore year and then and then goes to the NBA and doesn't take that that extra that third year, because um, uh, I, I don't know that it does him any good. With Bolden, I think you. Like you pointed out, if he transfers to a school like, like Texas Tech, um, he's not going to get the same opportunities for exposure that he is at Duke, and it's going to take him another year to even get back on the court. So I think that there's a, a better chance for him next year at Duke to be productive and be seen uh, and be considered a high draft pick than there is for him to wait that extra year, maybe get a little healthier, maybe develop a little more, uh, but then be playing at a lower profile program back in Texas. Um
1: look it's so, a, it's the difference in stepping up in in competition exactly. and quality and stepping down. Exactly. If the NBA's in your future, you can't step down. Right. Know? I think that I think that for career wise, now I, I don't know
3: Marquise Bolden. I don't as you said you your speculation is that he was homesick. That seems like a totally reasonable explanation. Um and, and if that's the case, then you know, I, I hope that um I hope that he just feels better next year. Um Strictly from a looking at it from a career decision, staying at Duke really made the most sense for him. Um, and and I'm glad for him, and selfishly for Duke and for us um, that he is staying because it, it was going to get very thin very quickly up front um, for the Blue Devils potentially if Bolden and Jeter were both gone next season.
2: Yeah, I think the the one thing the one takeaway I have is, is you know some I mean I think when the news was reported that he was transferring, I think that was real. I think somebody maybe jumped the gun a little bit, or maybe that he. Indicated that he was thinking about it and then, you know, changed, changed, uh, had a change of heart uh, at the last second, kind of like it, uh, what Jason was saying. But I, I agree with you. I think the one thing that was confusing to me was his path has always been, he wants to go to the NBA. He can consi- I mean, most people considered him one of the three, one, one of one of the one the one that we were going to have uh, along with Tatum and Giles and, and going to transfer to another school, sitting out a year and then playing a year at a school that was probably going to be in a, either a lesser conference or a lesser uh, stature uh, by any stretch from Duke. That's not the way you get to the NBA, or at least have your uh, have your star your stock go up. Um, so I, I think that was the more uh, confusing part. But I think now that he's back, he can contend for being one of the you know, starting bigs that we have, uh, you know, we're going to have Wendell Carter coming in. We're going to have uh, Antonio Vrankovic is going to be still in the mix. And we may be getting a, a couple other guys. Kevin Knox, I believe, is one of the bigger uh, uh, guys out there that we could get. He can contend with that. He can – I'd rather have a sophomore uh, Bolden than a couple freshmen that we have to re, you know, reinvent the wheel. He's going to know how the program works. He's going to know what's ex- expected. He can step up and be a leader and all this will help his stock rise even more than just sitting out one year um, at some school in Texas. So I'm glad he's back. I I think it's unfortunate how the news kind of came out and and kind of painted him in a bad light. And then all of a sudden, oh, wait, he's back again. I'm sure that doesn't help with the with the psyche. Um, And and, but I I kudos to the for to the school for getting out in front of it. Kudos to him for saying that, you know, this is where I want to be. I want to be back. And I'm glad that he is back. Okay. Obviously there are a couple more decisions that we're waiting on. uh, Namely, whether gardens, Grayson Allen and Luke Kennard will leave for the NBA or return to Duke. Uh, When we have official news, we will react to it on a future podcast. Um, Obviously those are two and recruiting and and recruiting and recruiting as well. Yeah,
1: I mean, there's still there. There are still three top 10 players. Um, left that are considering Duke now. The 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 return of Bolden probably means that uh, that Duke is no longer in the running for. Duh, I just blanked on the guy's name, Mohammed Bamba. Bamba, Bamba. Yeah. thank you so much. Yeah, uh, uh, most of the speculation is that um, Bamba was only going to uh, you know really consider Duke if uh, if there was less competition um, with Wendell Carter and. Bolden, uh, you know, at Duke, I, I can't imagine we're going to get Bamba, but, but Noxon and Trevon Duval are, are very, very much still, uh, most people think Duke is, is the leader for both those guys. Um, uh, you know, between those two, um, and Allen and Kennard, um, if we get two or three of those, Duke's probably not probably Duke's almost certainly a preseason top five team again. Um, if we get three of those four somehow at Duke, then we're definitely preseason top five and maybe even higher than that. I agree.
2: Okay, now we we a couple of days ago we posted on the forums asking for questions from all of you, and a lot of you submitted some great ones. So we are going to dive into the mailbox. We can't get into all of them. We appreciate all of you that you that submitted questions, but we did pick out a few to answer. Um, and I'm going to pose these questions to you guys. Uh, we're going to answer them pretty quickly. Um, The first one uh, question is a question posed by Kazi as in Kamikaze and Kazi asks, what would be the single most significant thing that can happen within the realm of possibility between now and November that would best equip us to contend for a national championship next season? And I will start with Jason.
1: I, I I just talked about it a second ago. I, I think it's that, um, You know, it's it's the return of some of these perimeter players. I think Duke's very nicely stocked on the inside now. Um, But if you want to say the single one significant thing, um, I'm weighing between the return of Luke Kennard and the arrival of Trevon Duval, who is a really, really impressive point guard. And it may seem insane for me to take a freshman over a guy who is going to be a... Uh, a a uh, who would be a junior, who would be certainly a team captain, who would be a first-team All-American preseason and probable uh, Player of the Year candidate. But I, I think I'm going to say, if Duke gets Trevon Duval, that'd be the most significant thing because I think Duke has really missed out on having a good point guard, and um, Duval is a remarkable, a great point guard. Um, I, I, it's crazy for me even to say it or think it. I mean getting Kennard would be unbelievable for next year's team. But man, I I really want to put the ball in the hands of a guy who creates for everybody else who puts pressure on the other team all the time. um, And who's very, very difficult to guard. So I'm going with Duke's best chance for next year is if we get that point guard in Trevon Duvall. So
3: I'll, I'll take a different tack here and say that it's the return of Grayson Allen. I think that the best version of Allen that we can, and, and, you know, this is, this is all assuming that he's able to kind of compartmentalize all the all the issues he had last year and that he's healthy. Um, but having fully healthy, fully focused Grayson Allen gives us a player that no one else in college basketball is going to have. A senior um, who, I, again, at his best, I think can play point guard, um, at least in college. Um, he's really strong. He can do a lot of things. Um, and, and whereas I think we saw Luke Kennard's College ceiling this year or something close to it. I don't think we've seen Grayson Allen's college ceiling, and um, or or that or that there there, there is more room uh, for improvement from him from last year than there is from Kennard. Um, so, in having a senior um, reestablished captain, Grayson Allen, I think that would be the best. That would be the 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 thing for Duke that would create the most
0: improvement.
2: Uh, I thought about that as well. I I actually did go with uh, the number one. Thing, most significant thing being Luke Kennard coming back because with that you come back with a guy who uh, would be a junior, uh, was one of the leaders in the ACC and a nation in scoring, twenty points a game back here, um, and, and just the fact that he's just an assassin who can score from anywhere on the court in any fashion. That is something that teams do not have a lot of, and I think that is the one thing that if we have him back in the saddle people will be scared to play Duke because they know that Luke Kennard could go off for 20 to 30 every single night. And I think that is the key uh, for next year. If we can get him back, we have leadership, we have scoring, we have a guy who will be one of the most feared, if not the most feared basketball player in college basketball. And I think that is what we'll need. Okay. Next question. The next question is from brevity Um, brevity has a question about the football stadiums used for the Final Four. And it said, one way to get Final Four teams used to playing in a football stadium is by putting a regional in a football stadium as well. If the third uh, and fourth round games were played in the roof stadiums closest to San Jose, Kansas City, Memphis, and New York, which was where they played this year, would we get enough tickets sold or would it turn off fans even more would the game results change, is it worth it to have worse play in the regionals in order to have better play in the final four? So I'll pose this question to you to kind of lump it: Is playing football, or playing in football stadiums during the Elite Eight and Sweet Sixteen, a good idea or a bad idea? And I'll start with you, Sam.
3: So I don't like them playing uh, playing the games in football stadiums at all. Um, I think that the the I mean, not that it matters for anybody on television because they're going to get the cameras in the right places and you're going to see basketball. Um, I think it, it's, it's a real bummer to be there and, and for those of you who have been to the Final Four, so I went, as you guys remember, um, I was at the National Championship game a couple of years ago in Indianapolis and I think that Brevity had another part of this question and Donald, you might have it up, um, about like, if we're ever going to move back to basketball stadiums or if, um, or if there's any way for them to do it in basketball stadiums again. I think that the Final Four is never going back And because when I went to the Final Four in Indy, um, I had one of the very worst seats in the house. I was like in the corner, in the wrong side of the stadium, and the face value on my ticket was like 150 bucks, and I had to pay a little more than that um, to get in. So they're they're making tons of money and selling out these Final Four games. That being said, when Duke has played in football stadiums, and I know they did in 2015, um, they've had regionals in football stadiums before, and it's just it's such a bummer because. The fans aren't going to travel as much for that as they are for the Final Four. And so they've had to, you know, put up big curtains to block off big parts of the stadium. It, that, I think, is, is even worse. Um, because if you think that the, the basketball looks bad when they're in full, enormous stadiums, it's going, to look, it's going to look even worse and even more unnatural when they're playing in stadiums that are too big and not full. Um, it's going to be a bummer for the players. It's going to be a bummer to look at on television. So I hope they don't do it. Um, I don't know what would have to change you know, like to to encourage more fan bases to go unless they were to sort of reorganize the tournament as like a regional event the way that it was sort of originally set up right because we still have like the east the south the midwest and the and the west regions um, and they do correspond to where the where the regional finals are played but they don't correspond to which teams make which which bracket, other than vaguely the teams at the top? Um, so, if they went back to a more regional tournament, it might be easier for fans of, say, Duke or UNC um, to plan ahead and be like, okay, we know in advance we're if we're playing in the regional final, we're going to be playing at the one in Memphis, so we'll all buy tickets to the Memphis final. Um, but I, I hope not. I, I don't think that those two games are really going to improve anything. So. Um, I, as much as they can get back to basketball stadiums, they should. I don't think they're ever going to do it for the Final Four because otherwise they'd be charging you know, $800, $1,000 or something like that to, to get into Final Four games. And, um, and that just might be prohibitive.
1: You know, the, this notion that we might someday go back. Do you guys know the last time the Final Four was played in a non-football like 60-plus thousand-seat stadium? Like, it was in the eight. No, it was, uh, so it was 1996 when they played in the Meadowlands. It was called Continental Airlines Arena. Right. It, it, they played in the Meadowlands in 1976. But since then, every single game has been in one of these big domed stadiums. 20 um, year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, we're not going back. And I, I think we all suffer from a little bit of recency bias. We all suffer from this, you know, sort of what have you done for me lately? So we, we watched uh, or some of us watched Monday night, a a game where neither team could shoot straight um, where, where, you know, baskets were really hard to come by where, you know, if a team went three minutes without scoring, it didn't take them out of the game because the other team probably was going five minutes without scoring. Um, it was aesthetically not a pleasing game, but, but it's not like being in a dome stadium means that no one's ever going to score and that baskets are really hard to come by need i remind you that just last year north carolina lost to villanova 77 to 74 that's a pretty reasonable score that's a good offensive game that's 150 points 151 points that were scored in that game in 2013 louisville beat michigan 82 to 76 at the georgia dome in atlanta that's good scoring 80 plus points. We've seen games in 2009, when Carolina won the title, they scored 89 points beating Michigan State at Ford Field in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, you know, scoring 80 plus points is not a rarity in a national championship game. When you think about the pressure of the game, the fact that teams that get there tend to play really, really hard um, uh, physical defense, I mean, it. It's not surprising that we see games that are in the 60s every now and then, or we have something like this, you know, this past Monday where it was not an aesthetically pleasing game, uh, you know, but I I think it's worth noting Gonzaga was the number one defensive efficiency team in the country. So, oh, wow, we got a game that was predicated on really, really tough, hard-nosed defense. Well, that's not surprising at all. So I think this, this notion that, oh, the dome stadiums, the football stadiums are causing these games to be bad. I think we're just thinking of this one year. Um, and yeah, it happens every so often, but I think it's a function of the defense that's being played more than it is uh, that, that these teams can't shoot when they're in these, these big giant stadiums. And if
3: you, if you really want to solve the games not being aesthetically pleasing, um, you should just ban UNC from the postseason.
1: Boom. I have no problem with this whatsoever. In fact, I, I have heard the NCAA is strongly considering doing that exact thing. So,
2: yeah, hey, kill two birds
1: with
2: one stone. There you go. So to briefly uh, answer the question, it used to be, and this is a rule that changed this year, it used to be where the NCAA, if you were hosting the Final Four one year, the year before you got a test run in the form of a regional. This is how we ended up in, in 2010 and 2015, our road to Indianapolis to win the national championship went through Houston because the free the year after that 2011 and 2016 Houston hosted the final four and was given the regional the year before as a test run this year they didn't do that um they got away from that they wanted to go back to the garden uh Madison Square Garden and it's the first time in a long time that they were able to do that and they wanted to put the four regions at arenas uh basketball arenas instead of football stadiums now I think that's the first time in maybe like 10 years where there wasn't a football stadium involved in the mix because of this rule, I think if you want to, if you're going to keep the Final Four in these football stadium, which I'm actually a fan of, but I also have not been to these games, I think is a good showcase of college basketball. You're going to have to make it so that some of these teams get used to playing in it. I know, for example, in 2009, Michigan State played UNC in. Ford Field earlier in the season because they wanted to get used to playing under the lights and, and hopefully getting back there. And we saw what happened that year. That was a national championship game was those two teams at that same stadium. What we are probably seeing in future years is we're going to have more than one, uh, at least one football stadium involved in the mix. And, and that is going to help us. I think Coach K back in 2010 and 2015 mentioned that being in Houston and playing a, a t- you know a road game against Baylor, but playing under those lights and and getting used to that sort of uh, those sight lines is what helped them and helped the freshman calm down and, and and win the national championship. So uh, I, I think it's a good. I, I don't think it's a bad thing to be in a football stadium. And I do kind of agree that if you're going to use the Final Four to showcase that in, in this sort of way, then maybe putting some more of these games in uh in these arenas in the in these football stadiums, ticket sales be damned. I think that's going to be The key if you want to see a little bit better basketball from every team and not just, you know, a a crapshoot every year. Okay, moving on. We're running a little bit out of time. So we're going to go to this next question from Mountain Devil tying into the UNC uh, scandal. Does UNC championship increase the profile of the scandal and increase the chance of eventual consequences of their actions? Or does the trophy somehow make the NCAA less likely to dig into the historic academic fraud? Uh, Jason, this is your topic, man go.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, no. So yes, I think it does increase the um, profile of the scandal. We've seen a number of stories, a number of articles, uh, both in the national media. There was one in Sports Illustrated. There was one in USA Today. Um, I think there may have been something on ESPN, although ESPN um, has shied away from this scandal a tremendous amount. A lot of people think that John Skipper, the, the president of, uh, of ESPN, is a UNC graduate. And a lot of people think that uh, ESPN has an agenda to to not really um, cover the scandal all that much, uh, but we, we've we seen a lot more stories about the scandal in recent days because Carolina was thrust into the spotlight by being in the national championship game and winning it, um, and, and so I think that uh, attention to the scandal has increased. Uh, and my bet is there are a number of people who are sort of casual college basketball fans who uh, have been exposed to the scandal perhaps for the first time. Um, Or if not for the first time, they've been exposed to it, um, you know, in more detail than they had in the past, because this is such a prominent thing, um, uh, you know, the national championship and Carolina being there. Now, does it change the potential consequences? I think the answer to that is no. I think the NCAA is, you know, deliberating and figuring out and the committee on infractions will come up with a penalty. And I think whether or not Carolina won the championship this year uh, has zero impact on the penalty that they're going to come up with, but but that's just me. And I know part of what Mountain Devil asked was he was disgusted at all the talks about redemption um, in regard to to last year's defeat for Carolina. Um, uh, he feels like, uh, he, as he put it, in the larger context, um, re- redemption for Carolina. Um, you know, we still need to see Carolina punished before they can get any redemption. And I think he's absolutely right about that. Um, we we just are still waiting, 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 waiting for the NCAA to give us the final word on what Carolina's penalties will be. Um, but I don't the penalties will not touch this year's championship. And as I said at the beginning of the podcast, they earned it and they earned it fair and square, and um, they deserve uh, respect for that.
3: I, I think that um, it doesn't change it a whole lot in either direction. I saw as much coverage this week of the scandal as I think you do normally from sort of the national media, like it comes up. Um, I saw a couple writers mention it about how, um, you know, either they really wanted to talk about it or that they, you know, it has to be mentioned along with, you know, all the great stories at UNC and about how all the guys stick around and and that kind of stuff. Um, But I don't think it really changes the equation. I think that, um, you know, at a certain point, the folks at the NCAA hopefully are getting fed up um, with the fact that they they haven't gotten closure on this. Um, they get constant needling from you know a small subset of fans, and um, and perhaps this perhaps it it, it accelerates them because now they think all right well if we punish Carolina now at least they got a championship out of it in the meantime or some something silly like that. Um, but no, I, I I don't see it making a huge difference one way or another.
2: Yeah, I I, I don't think the consequences are going to be lessened because they won a national championship. I think that's ludicrous. I think uh, it doesn't increase the profile of the scandal. I think it already has. There was a lot of articles uh, leading up to in the final four and also the day of the national championship that highlighted this aspect that that basically said, while UNC is playing for a national championship, let's not forget that this academic scandal still exists. And it's something that needs to be addressed. Um, So I I do think that has increased the profile of the scandal and I don't think it will lessen the consequences just because they happen to win the last basketball game of the season. So uh, the redemption part, I mean, there really isn't anything to redeem yet because they haven't been punished uh, and they have not come back from said punishment. They haven't even self-imposed a lot of things. So uh, I do think that uh, the, the whole context of, uh, of this scandal, I think is going now we now the NCAA has to sit there and say, OK, the defending na- the defending national champions or the the current national champions. We have to address the scandal that's in front of us now, because that's not going away. Um, a lot of the a lot of them are highlighting the fact that they have won six national championships. And by all accounts, two of them might be in jeopardy. Um, so uh, at least two of them might be in jeopardy. So I think that it does need to be addressed. And I think the consequences need to be the same, regardless of what had happened on Monday night. Uh, We want to thank you all for your questions, but, you know, don't let the party stop here. I know we only got to a few of them, but we have an email address that you can submit questions to and we can address them on future podcasts. That email address is dbrpod at gmail.com. That's D-B-R-P-O-D at gmail.com. So hit us up there. We'd love to hear from you. And and on future podcasts, we're going to dive into some of these questions or at least tie them into some of the germane uh, discussions that we'll have at that time.
1: Yeah. And, and by the way, uh, again, I, I I was blown away. You know, I posted this little thing on the board. I'm like, hey, if anyone's got questions and I gave you all less than 24 hours to give us questions. And we got we got like a- at least eight or 10 really, really good questions. And I'm I'm bummed that we don't have time to get to all of them this time. But. Like Donald said, first of all, thanks, everyone. Thanks for engaging us. Oh, my God, it's amazing. And we will get to these questions in a future podcast. We may do a podcast in a few weeks that's nothing but a mailbag. Right, guys? Yeah, and we could do that.
3: And, 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 I'll, and I will promise that whenever that is, I will at least do one deep dive on – because there were a few questions that, were, that asked for some pretty in-depth stuff. Um, I will go ahead and do like a deep dive on one of the questions. There was some stuff about uh, NBA players and about Duke – they could do coaching tree um some really good good stuff that I that I'll go ahead and look into Absolutely good you, you, you do that <laughs> Okay
2: <laughs> And now we move on to parting shots I will start with you Jason
1: So uh my parting shot is um a uh, a reality check for college basketball fans everywhere, and most of you probably heard the story, but I um, there, there was sort of an update on it, and I, I want to highlight it again, and then I want to relate it back to Duke a little bit. Um, uh, Tim Higgins, uh, a, a referee in the NCAA tournament who's one of the finest refs in the country. People may mock him. Look, guys who are successful refs for a long time, everyone has a beef with them. But Tim Higgins consistently, time and time again, is rated as one of the best referees um uh you know in the NCAA that's why he referees important games like games in the final 8 and games in the final 4 and stuff like that tim higgins was a referee in the north carolina and kentucky game in the final 8 um a lot of kentucky fans didn't like the way that game was officiated and after kentucky lost um tim higgins was uh just destroyed um by kentucky fans who who found um Uh, the, 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 the phone number and the address of, of the business that he owns in Omaha, Nebraska, he owns a business called weather guard. Um, I think they do roofing kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, and his business was assaulted. This is a man who he's a referee and he makes a living at that, but not his full living. His major occupation is owning this company weather guard and his company was actually put in danger by Kentucky fans. They they went online to his to the company's Facebook page and, and you know other social media places and they posted false negative things about Weatherguard. Um, they 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 made the phone lines at the company. It was impossible for customers to get through. There were people who were individuals, singular people were calling 40 or 50 times a day to WeatherGuard's phone line that Weatherguard has three phone lines. They rang nonstop and every single phone call was people complaining, um, using all kinds of curse words and things like that to assault Tim Higgins and, and prevent his business from, from doing business. Um, there were death threats. Uh, his, his wife and family, um, uh, we, we got an update from, uh, from a, a newspaper in Omaha that spoke to Tim Higgins a few days ago, which is why I'm bringing this up again. Tim Higgins says that his wife and family, uh, he's been an official for 28 years. They told him to stop. They, they they didn't want him to continue to officiate because the vitriol that he got from – did I just use the word vitriol twice on one podcast? I think I did. Uh, I think you did. <laughs> uh, the, the, the attacks that he got from these Kentucky fans were so much um, – uh, many of his employees of his business said they were nervous about driving around the Omaha area in company trucks that had the company's logo on it because they thought that people might attack them. Um, there were false reports fired, filed with the Nebraska Better Business Bureau. One of the reasons we know the reports were false was because among the names that were used to file the reports was Adolf Rupp, who of course was the head coach at Kentucky for many, many years. And someone filed a report under the name Calipari John. Like they thought, oh wait, I won't say John Calipari. I'll flip his front first and his last name. Either that or they're too stupid to know what last name, first name means on a, on a form or something like that. Uh, but I mean, that, The Better Business Bureau, a a government-funded organization, I'm sure that they had to spend resources and time to look into these false claims. It's horrible. It's offensive. It's the wrong attitude for fans. It shows Kentucky fans in the worst possible light, and they deserve to be there um, if they're going to do this kind of thing. Don't blame the refs. But I wanted to bring this all full circle. The reason I wanted to talk about it was a few days ago, Mr. Bolden, Marcus Bolden of Duke, um, there were rumors, there was talk, there were Twitter reports that he was going to transfer. And I started to hear and we started to see on the DBR people, you know, really angry at him um, and, and saying negative things about the Duke program and, and especially negative things about Marquise Bolden. And, and look, there are a lot of fans who were angry at Harry Giles. And I'm sure that when Luke Kennard and Grayson Allen make their decisions, if it's not what people want to hear, there'll be fans, they'll be angry at them for, ter- for going to the NBA. Get a life, people. We don't, you know, it's just basketball, and it seems silly for a guy who spends hours working on a podcast about just basketball to say this. But it's not something that you need to go crazy over, um, and and we just need to to temper ourselves a little bit. When I read all this stuff about Tim Higgins and the way the Kentucky fans were treating him and his business, it, it just it, it it makes me so upset and and i i just want to say to all the duke fans out there let's be bigger than this let's be better than this when we get bad news when things don't go well for us don't act the way these kentucky fans did
2: yeah i agree i i i have yelled at tim higgins i mean going back to when i was in school i have yelled at personally uh he has yelled back at me uh, when i was in the stands as a camera crazy uh, but never would I resort to do this. I don't think most, almost everyone I know, and, and you guys know, I'll, I will go on record saying would never do this. So let's, you're right. Let's be way bigger than that. That is absolutely awful. Um, but uh, unfortunately, that's something that I kind of come to expect from Kentucky fans. Uh, Sam, your party chat. So I mentioned
3: earlier, uh, a, or I had a joke about Georgetown. Um, so earlier this week. I think a lot of college basketball fans probably saw the news that Georgetown had previously fired John Thompson III. It was probably long overdue, and um, they subsequently hired this week Patrick Ewing, of course the famous NBA player and Georgetown alum from the 80s. Um, who I think was basically out of the league by the time any of the kids he's going to be recruiting were born. So I don't know how much any of them know about Patrick Ewing as a professional basketball player. Um, and oh, his, I think he's and, I think
1: he's legendary. He's legendary. Sure, Kids don't sure, know. Yeah. He
3: also he also played a brand of basketball that that is almost unseen nowadays um, in the NBA and in college. Um, so there are a lot of there are a lot of arguments for hiring a guy like Patrick Ewing at Georgetown. Um, I tend to think that it's not going to go well uh, just because he hasn't been a head coach yet and he's going to a school that has a lot of pedigree and has a lot of expectations. Um, and And I think that a, a school and a program like Georgetown should be able to get an experienced coach, even though the guy they got is arguably their most famous alumnus. Um, now, all that being said, um, the there was a, there was a, tweet earlier that I saw that I sent to you guys um, from Dan Steinberg at the Washington Post who's, who's, who chronicles kind of all the, all the funny business around D.C. sports. He's not like he, – he's a columnist, but he also, but he also likes to find all the, all the humorous things. So he had a tweet earlier that um, Patrick Ewing was talking to one of the sports radio stations in D.C. and said that he was going to have to get rid of his son who was on the Georgetown coaching staff because they have uh, nepotism rules at Georgetown. Um, which was very funny because uh, all of the all of the silliness that's probably gone, or not silliness, but all the kind of you know lack of quality in their basketball program in recent years, could probably be traced to the fact that their head coach just was still there because he was the son of their very famous head coach John Thompson Jr. Um, so it 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 was a it was sort of a funny moment um, reading all that and and consider me skeptical that. Patrick Ewing is going to be the coach that brings Georgetown back to the promised land. And I'll be happy if that's wrong. Um, I, I did sort of root for Georgetown as a kid because, as I've mentioned to you guys, I grew up uh, right outside of Washington, and I was a Duke fan, certainly. Uh, but when it came to the local teams, I certainly wasn't going to root for Maryland because I was a Duke fan, um, and Georgetown was the other really prominent program in the area. So we, my dad and I went to Georgetown games. Uh, I was sort of notionally a Georgetown fan after being a Duke fan. Um, so I hope it works out. But but I, I just don't know. Um, so that's my parting shot.
1: I, I I have to tell you, when when you sent that tweet to us um, about the nepotism rules at Georgetown, I, I wanted to go nepotism at Georgetown. I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> to which to which someone would say, here are your winnings, sir, you know, taking back yeah. the, the great Casablanca scene. Yeah. It's like, oh, God. I mean, it's probably the school that has the worst nepotism problem of any school in I mean, the NCAAs did they, did, they, did they
2: implement those rules on Monday? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's probably the condition of hiring. Of hiring. It's yeah. like, all right, uh, we're going to institute a nepotism rule, but it's literally like two seconds before you sign this piece of paper. Right. I'm going to dive into the world of... NBA basketball, and for those of you out there who are not watching this season, you are missing arguably the greatest season that anyone has ever put together, and that anyone is Russell Westbrook uh, of the Oklahoma City Thunder. Last night, he tied Oscar Robinson's record for most triple-doubles in a season with 41. Uh, 41 games. He has had a triple-double, points, rebounds, and assists. Uh, He has also become the first player ever to have two streaks in one season. Of seven or more consecutive games with a triple double, and he has five games left to get. If he gets 16 assists in his final five games, he will ensure finishing the season with averaging a triple double in points, assists, and rebounds. That is unfathomable. Uh, is is arguably one of the greatest seasons any individual NBA player has put together. And uh, there's there's still talk out there that he might not even win the MVP award, which I think is absolutely just astounding because it's un- incredible with the talent that the NBA has nowadays this is a lot of people think it's one of the richest you know talent beds the NBA has had in, in years and he's killing every single one of them um I, I don't understand how he's not the unanimous MVP this year he has performed brilliantly uh and if you guys aren't watching Rus- Russell Westbrook uh you guys need to just go ahead and start because it is a one man show every single night and it's not one of those He's going to do everything and you're gonna see four of the guys on the court. Obviously he is averaging like thirteen assists uh a game, uh, and he's averaging twelve rebounds a game. So he he is including everybody in this, he's single handedly leading the Oklahoma City Thunder to the playoffs and in really good position to contend for a title. Uh and I think that is something that is to be commended.
1: You you know, the folks who say um, oh, they're not sure about him for the MVP. Mostly point to James Harden, correct, um, of the Houston Rockets, who who is also having a truly incredible year. Um, and and I think most of those folks say, oh, wait, the the, the Rockets, um, you know, are the number three seed in the Western Conference. Oklahoma City is the number six seed. Um, and and Oklahoma City's only won 50, uh, 44 games. Houston's won fifty two. Uh, you know, Houston is clearly much more of a title contender than Oklahoma City is. But my thing about it is, I mean, we're talking about most valuable player. Um, Oklahoma City is making the playoffs for sure. Um, and and uh, they're actually going to play Houston in the first round. They, they are a credible contender to beat Houston in advance in the Western Conference playoffs. I don't think they're a credible team that could win the title, but they, they can make some noise in the playoffs. If they didn't have Russell Westbrook, do, is there anyone that thinks Oklahoma, look at the rest of that roster. Would Oklahoma City win more than 20 games? They'd be the worst team in the league, right? Right. I mean, that's like a given.
2: So and the thing about it is worried? the thing about it is I think they're 34 and 7 when he has a triple double. So like his triple doubles aren't just like, you know, stat stuffers for the sake of just putting up stats and blowout blow out games where they're losing. They're winning because of these triple doubles because again, he's getting his whole team involved and there's a point where and there's a lot of games where he's getting 40 and 50 points and still getting 14 assists. That is incredible. That's something that you'd never see and. Frankly, it's what a lot of people have been saying is what's wrong with the NBA is that you have the guys who score and don't really pass the ball around. He's doing that. He's doing a lot of
1: that, and he's doing it very well. I think he's worth 20 wins. I think they are 20 wins better with him than they would be without him. That's stunning to think about.
2: Yeah, absolutely incredible. Um, But uh, that is going to do it for Episode 77 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Remember, you can subscribe to us at iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher Radio. We appreciate all of you who listen to every episode, and you're the reason why we keep doing this. It's fun to do it, but we're really glad you all are listening to to us have fun. So for Sam Klein and Jason Evans, I am Donald Wine. We will circle back with you all soon, but for now, Duke Band, show us the way home. It's time to expect more from urgent care, like caregivers who take time to listen, smooth access to local specialty care if you need it, virtual visits and save your spot convenience, plus easy access community locations. And we're open 365 days a year to treat your sprains, cuts, fever, and flu. Northwell Health Go Health Urgent Care. Get more than you expect and exactly what you need. Welcome to a new era in urgent care.